the Bowery Boys episode 363, the story of Jones Beach, Son, Fun, and Robert Moses. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And today, we're happy to be bringing you along on the second Mm -hmm. installment of our road trip to Long Island. Yes. In our last show, part one, we visited the spectacular mansions of Long Island's northern coast. It's Gold Coast, made internationally famous by F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 novel, The Great Gatsby. Today, however, we are heading to the southern shore. Greg, we're going to take one of those parkways south to one of the country's most spectacular public beaches, Jones Beach, which opened to the public in 1929. Millions flock to Jones Beach each summer from all over the metropolitan area. And it's much more than just a beach or a collection of beaches. It offers a wide range of recreational activities, along with an outdoor theater that seats thousands of spectators and includes a moat and a floating (laughs) stage. But Jones Beach didn't just happen. It took years of planning and construction and engineering to create this magnificent space. And it took the imagination and the leadership of a truly gifted parks commissioner, a young man named Robert Moses. Jones Beach exists as it does today, in fact, because of Robert Moses. He built it, he promoted it, and oversaw its operation and expansion for decades. Jones Beach was his baby. So today we'll be telling that story, the creation of Jones Beach, and then we'll be hopping in the car and heading to the beach ourselves to stroll its two-mile boardwalk and discuss some of its most notable features. Yes. So pack your swimsuit and a towel as we dig through the sunny saga of Jones Beach. Greg, that is the lilting sound, the lilting melodies of Guy Lombardo, band leader extraordinaire, who would make a home for himself for years out at Jones Beach, and we'll get to that later in the show. Yes. Sweet music wafting over the waves. But first, why don't you situate us? Where are we? Where is Jones Beach? Sure. So Jones Beach, or more specifically Jones Beach State Park, is on the south shore of Long Island. It's over 2,400 acres, makes it more than three times the size of Central Park. It consists of 6.5 miles of white sand beach, most of which faces into the Atlantic Ocean. The entire thing is situated on a 17-mile barrier island known as Jones Beach Island, separated from the mainland by South Oyster Bay. Now, the state park is actually on the western end of this barrier island. On the eastern end um, are a couple other undeveloped state parks and a couple small hamlets, Oak Beach and West Gilgo Beach. Um, which are part of the town of Babylon. So for a beach that is so famous for being, you know, reachable by New Yorkers by auto, uh, it's kind of ironic then that this is a, it's an island that's actually located off of another island, Long Island. (laughs) Yes. And it's accessible to those drivers via the Wantaw State Parkway and the Meadowbrook State Parkway. Mm-hmm. And of course, on the eastern end by the Robert Moses Causeway. Spoiler alert, there is a lot of Robert Moses in this story, at least the first part of the story. Now, Jones Beach State Park opened in 1929 and almost immediately became one of the most popular attractions in New York State. And historically, it is the most visited East Coast beach ever. And we're not talking ancient history. It's still very, very popular today. Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, last year, okay, during the pandemic, 
the beach received 8.3 million visitors, making it New York State's most visited park. Now, in normal years, it usually ranks in second place, the first being Niagara Falls. And what exactly makes it so popular? Well, unlike many of the more glamorous beaches of Miami or the West Coast, Jones Beach is built for families. It is a PG-rated experience. It is not a spring break destination. Unless it's spring break for elementary school students. <laughs> true, true. I, I, I meant I more of the Daytona Beach style celebration for spring break. Um, and there are no casinos or nightlife like there is in Atlantic City. Jones Beach is a blockbuster presentation of the basic beach experience. Endless sands, colossal bathhouses, plenty of spaces for sports and outdoor recreations, and a massive boardwalk. It's also not in a city, right? So there is a level of tranquility that is quite different from, say, Santa Monica Beach uh, in Los Angeles. Yet it is only 20 miles from New York City, meaning that it is a very accessible option on the weekends for city dwellers. Okay, so that's an overview. But pulling back here a second, Jones Beach. Mm-hmm. Who, who's Jones? Who is Jones? Who well, was Jones? Well, he was Major Thomas Jones, an Irish privateer who became one of the first white settlers of this region on land that was once occupied by the Massapequa native tribe. But then jumping forward to the late 19th century, to the time really where we started our last show mm-hmm. on the North Coast, during the turn of the century, there were great estates that were starting to be built on the northern shore mm-hmm. of Long Island. What was happening down here at that time? Well, on the area of the mainland, mainland Long Island here on the South Shore, you have the town of Hempstead, which includes several little hamlets and villages all over, many of them dating back to the colonial era. Jones Beach Island, which is the barrier island, you know, against the Atlantic Ocean, was not an inhabitable place at all, at least, you know, in most seasons. But there was a small seasonal community which cropped up upon the high dunes down here, a community called High Hill Beach. By the early 1920s, you had dozens of little bungalows and cottages here. Very remote, which of course made it a nice little place to escape during Prohibition with Mm. decadent, if you know, perhaps more modest parties than those held up in the mansions of the Gold Coast. But by the 1920s, how could that... It doesn't seem like it would be possible to stay so remote. No. Well, as residents of Long Island know only too well, the needs of greater New York City, an international city of prominence, often takes precedence over their own local needs. Okay, this is sort of a a refrain that happens over and over again in Long Island history. This was even the case in the 19th century when Brooklyn, which was an independent city back then, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In 1870, Brooklyn purchased 3,500 acres of Long Island real estate through that town of Hempstead. And they used it as watershed property, providing some of Brooklyn's drinking water. Okay. But by the 1920s, did Brooklyn still own or still have the title to all of this land that contained these waterways? Well, they did, and this was actually uncovered with great excitement uh, in 1922 by a young public servant who worked for the newly elected governor, Al Smith, a servant who would in many ways reshape the fate of Long Island. Of course, we're talking about Robert Moses. Robert Moses in his younger years, Mm -hmm. the early years. Um, What did this younger, more idealistic Robert Moses find so interesting about these waterways? Well, Moses was in love with the South Shore, and he even summered in the town of Babylon. He appreciated the tranquility of Jones Beach Island, often rowing a boat out here and walking along the beach, rolling up his pant legs, shouting instructions at seagulls, probably. (laughs) But as we know, he's also a man that 
dreamt of interconnectivity. He knew that these places couldn't stay isolated for long, but he also didn't want them destroyed. And one way to save these places of beauty was to create a system of state parks to preserve them. And so in 1924, Moses became the chair of the New York Council of Parks and president of the newly formed Long Island Parks Commission. And that commission was formed to create parks and mm-hmm. to protect Long Island's natural beauty because it was it was being developed so rapidly. Moses was fighting to preserve nature yeah. and make it accessible to the public. Y- yeah, he was. Although, as we'll see, that often meant that Moses ended up creating entirely new areas of land from the old land. Later on, as we know from many of our shows, he could redefine almost any project he was working on so that almost anything that he wanted to do would fall under his purview. For instance, as a state parks commissioner, he saw all of Long Island as a potential park. According to The Power Broker by Robert Caro, quote, Long Island was, Moses said, a gigantic cul-de-sac a body of land with no outlet on the eastern end. Therefore, he said, the island is not a commercial community. Instead, it is a place for people to live and play, mostly play. New roads, therefore, should be parkways designed to bring people out of New York City for recreation and not for any other reason. So by designating then so much of Long Island as parkland, mm-hmm. as recreational district, he would be placing a lot of Long Island uh, directly under his control. Exactly. You know, roads, for instance, well, they weren't just roads, they were parkways. So he could develop new roads because that would lead to new parks. They were the way of parks. Right. You know, driving itself was also in the 1920s a kind of leisure activity or recreation. So Mm -hmm. there was this concept of of leisure driving, you know, driving along a parkway should be a beautiful experience. Mm -hmm. And so you would sculpt the parkland around those parkways. Yeah. And head off for a drive. Oh, yes. Now, do you remember the those watershed properties uh, that Brooklyn owned in Long Island for its water supply here in Hempstead? Mm-hmm. Well, a bulk of it was transferred to the Long Island Parks Commission for the development of a parkway, today known as the Southern State Parkway, which began construction in 1925 and opened in segments over the next few years. But where would it be going, you may ask? I have a feeling it's heading out to Jones Beach. (laughs) That's right, but not Jones Beach as it currently looked, but an entirely recreated beach, an all-new destination hatched from the mind of Robert Moses. Now, he believed himself to be a steward of the public, and occasionally he even was. (laughs) But, But he did not like many of the things that the public enjoyed, and he saw destinations like Coney Island and... Rockaway Beach, with their tawdry and crass amusements, the sideshows and taverns, cheap thrills, roller coasters. He looked down upon all of that. They were very common, Greg, and he was not, he was not raised that way. He thought that they were dirty and ugly. So he built the beach that he wanted to go to, with a boardwalk and endless beach, sports and wholesome recreations. And unlike the tackiness of Coney Island... He wanted modern architecture and clean public spaces. Most importantly, he wanted a destination that accommodated automobiles. Now, this is not a unique idea to Moses during this time. It was actually an urgency for anyone in this position. In 1920, there were 8.1 million cars on the road in the United States. But in 1929, so at the end of the decade, there were 23.1 million in the country. So many, many, many more people were driving. And to make it a successful and appealing new park then, it had to bend to the will of motor traffic. Okay, so I see where you're going with this. But Mm -hmm. backing up here, I understand where where Moses would get the land for his parkway. But what about the land for the 
the beach itself. I mean, wouldn't you need to get the the residents of the communities out here in Long Island on your side and, and get their approval? I mean, are you saying that did the people of Long Island believe that their homes were, quote, not a commercial community and a place for mostly play? Unsurprisingly, they did not think that. While he could, of course, obtain those watershed properties to develop the parkways, um, he would need to scoop up many private properties. And in many cases, the landowners who own those properties had been on those sites for decades. There were also several small business owners who had their properties seized through eminent domain. And Moses even fought with a few wealthy families, like the Guggenheims, for instance, who tried and failed to stop his collection of some of their favorite summer properties. And those were just the properties heading up to the beach. Mm -hmm. What about the beach itself? Who was out there? Who owned it? Right. Well, so it's interesting because it straddles two counties. So it was collectively owned by two towns in Nassau County, Hempstead and Oyster Bay, and then by the town of Babylon in Suffolk County. Sounds complicated. <laughs> but you said Babylon. Isn't that where you said that Moses had a summer home? Yeah. Had a summer home? Mm-hmm. So did he have any extra pole then in, in Babylon? Were they more open to it? I would actually say it was even harder to obtain uh, their approval than the other places. Babylon, being in Suffolk County, owned the easternmost part of Jones Beach Island. And this portion was especially critical to his grand plan, which was not just to develop Jones Beach, but a whole stretch of new parkland on the South Shore. So here in Babylon, the community fought fiercely against Moses. And over at Oyster Bay, for instance, residents formed a committee called Save Our Beaches, which might very possibly be the very first anti-Moses group ever in New York State. But certainly not the last. Uh, No. (laughs) But clearly Jones Beach would be created by Moses. So in the end, would he win over the residents of these communities? Um, No. No, he didn't at all. You know, they were very resistant to having city folk come out to their tranquil area of land. They didn't want the traffic. They didn't want the people. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be left alone. But uh, Robert Moses, however, won over the politicians and perhaps that was more important for him. He won, of course, because of his connections and the unwavering support of the governor, Governor Al Smith, and thanks to Moses' burgeoning skills of power brokering with local Republican politicians. Nothing was going to stand in the way of building his vision of Jones Beach. Nothing would stay in the way physically, too? I mean, that would include that small community of High Hill Beach that was actually located out there on the beach? Right. They were on Jones Beach, right? Well, um, no, most of that would be demolished too. But believe it or not, not all of it. But they're not there anymore. Some remaining homes from this particular community were moved by barge to the eastern part of the island uh, called West Gilgo Beach. And today, there's a gated community there that traces itself back to these cottages, which were moved by barge. Wow. There would, of course, be actual referendums and votes held in these communities, votes that would turn out to favor the construction of Jones Beach. All I'm going to say is there was some shady election practices, and this is not a conspiracy theory. And there were no recounts. (laughs) No. Well, in December of 1926, construction formally began um, when workmen slammed a spike right into the spot where the water tower would be constructed out on Jones Beach Island, right in the right in the center of the beach development. And soon after, construction would also begin on the causeway to get traffic out to the beach. By which you mean the Wontaw State Parkway, which was the roadway that went directly to the beach from the mainland, which is in addition to the Southern State Parkway. Right. There's so many parkways going on here. (laughs) You've got the Southern State Parkway that would run from Queens east for 30 miles out into Long Island. But then the second parkway, the Wontaw State Parkway, or also called the Jones Beach Causeway, which then would be constructed from the town of Wontaw four and a half miles south to Jones Beach. And that parkway or causeway would be built over the marshland of South Oyster Bay and include the construction of three bridges. 
And once you were actually on Jones Beach Island proper, there was another parkway. Yes, Ocean Parkway that runs along the beach right down the middle of Jones Beach Island itself. Um, Initially a three-mile-long parkway, it's much longer today, uh, but it would give beachgoers access to the Atlantic Ocean beaches on one side and the calmer shores of Zacks Bay on the northern side. You know, that is a heck of a lot of construction to be doing all at once in this one fairly isolated place. And that's just like the roadways. And the construction of the Wanta State Parkway was plagued with issues right from the beginning. Workers went on strike. One contractor went broke. Bella Moses, the mother of Robert Moses, his very wealthy mother, actually had to bail out the construction of the parkway, lending the project $20,000 when Moses couldn't find the money anywhere else. A bailout from Mother Moses? (laughs) Mother Moses to the rescue. (laughs) And for, but don't forget, they actually had to build a beach. Like, they oh, right. built the, it. The actual beach, Jones Island, actually rose only a couple feet above sea level. So that wouldn't work in the big picture because, you know, Moses had this idea of thousands, tens of thousands of people parking cars out here. So you didn't want to mess with parking lots two feet above sea level. So workers needed to actually build up the entire island with sand, which they did by dredging up this inconceivable amount of sand, 40 million cubic yards of it, Hmm. from the bottom of South Oyster Bay and dumping it on top of Jones Island in order to raise its elevation 12 feet above sea level. And then they noticed that this spot now higher up in the air really caught the wind, you know, blowing in, whipping around from the ocean. It would sweep the sand up into the air and and blow it right in the face of anybody who was interested in bathing. So Moses called in environmental engineers uh, to study the situation. And they, they realized that along other beaches out on Long Island, There was native seagrass that was growing, you know, amidst the sand dunes um, and keeping sort of the blowing down, keeping the sand in place. So Moses's engineers then were sent around Long Island to dig up the seagrass and then transplant it here out on Jones Beach. So much work put in and thought put in to make something look completely natural yeah what were they actually building though on the beach itself well while all of that dredging was happening in 1928 they were also constructing uh the beach's first building a a gigantic luxurious bathhouse today known as the east bathhouse moses chose a spot that would give swimmers access to the beach, the ocean side, but also to the calm waters on the bay side for families. And in typical Moses fashion, he wildly overspent on this very first <laughs> building construction. He, he was given a budget of $150,000 for the bathhouse from state legislators. They didn't understand that Moses, however, and his architect, a man named Herbert Magoon, were envisioning a much more luxurious ar- luxurious structure that would be finished with expensive Barbizon brick and Ohio sandstone, not the cheapest materials. Mm-hmm. The $150,000 actually only covered the, the cost of laying the building's foundation. The structure would end up housing more than 10,000 lockers and many, many other services and concessions. We need to remind ourselves that Robert Moses at this time is a somewhat new employee, right? He has worked for the state for less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. So so why on earth did they continue to give him money even when he wildly overspent his budget? Well, he understood the public. Robert Caro, in his biography of Moses, the power broker, makes this point over and over. This would be trademark Moses strategy for decades. He would start a project with a rather small budget, right? But then start building bigger and really capture the public's imagination and their enthusiasm, Mm -hmm. especially with park projects. If you could get the public on your side, more money would really have to follow because what were the officials up in Albany going to do? You know, stop the project and let let it sit there like in a ruined state just mm-hmm. because they wouldn't give it more money. 
especially when it came to parks, he saw that you would just get the project started, get the public on your side, and the budget would fall into place. But at last, Jones Beach would open to the public on August 4th, 1929. And I'm just going to assume that it was Robert Moses in his finest bathing suit, beckoning (laughs) everyone towards the beach. You're making a joke, but we haven't even pointed out that Robert Moses was a huge swimmer, mm-hmm. okay, throughout his entire life. And so, yes, this was a project that he cared very much about. And he did go swimming often um, out on Long Island and at Jones Beach. But here, I think for the opening ceremony, he was actually in black tie, wow. uh, a bow tie, more precisely. The ceremony was held under a tent that uh, had been constructed outside of the new bathhouse and was officiated by Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was really no friend of Moses's at the time, (laughs) along with a former governor, Al Smith, who you mentioned, who was sitting Mm -hmm. prominently uh, up next to Moses in the front. An estimated 50,000 people came to celebrate this opening of the new beach and the new Jones Beach Causeway and Ocean Parkway. In the next day's Brooklyn Daily Eagle, they reported, quote, In spite of a terrific sandstorm that whipped particles of sand with knife-like force against unprotected faces, it is estimated that more than 50,000 came to the Jones Beach State Park yesterday for its official dedication. The bathhouse, accommodating 10,000 persons, was thrown open immediately after the speeches of the dedication, and the vast throng of visitors was ably handled by state troopers and county police. A duplicate bathhouse will be started immediately. And there's this kind of amazing and hilarious photo of crowds, of throngs, of men in dark suits and women in dresses walking the beach, Greg, in suits and dresses, <laughs> men holding their, head, their, their hats to their heads in the wind. Some people in like full body bathing suits running into the water. But here on August 4th of 1929, Jones Beach was now officially opened, and that first season, more than a million visitors would flock to the beach. Oh my, wow. Wow, That so it was an instant success. Instant. And the causeway was instantly filled with people driving out there. So exactly what were they going to? Like, there was a bathhouse that was open, and the beach was open, but what other aspects of the state park here were open in time for the crowds? Well, uh, yeah, the parkways were open. 50 acres of parking lots were open. I mean, (laughs) now New York City residents had a beautiful way. Instead of jamming through local roads to get to various Long Island beaches from which they might be trespassing, you know, now they could actually Mm -hmm. take a beautiful parkway without any stops except for stopping in traffic, but no red lights, basically all the way out and then down a beautiful causeway to a public beach. The beach would become so popular and the causeways and parkways so jam-packed that Moses would have to add another causeway to get out from the Southern State Parkway to Jones Beach. That would be the Meadowbrook Causeway, which was finished in 1934. Now, on the subject of these, the newly built parkways, and in specific, the Southern State Parkway, Let's talk for a moment about those bridges that go over the parkway, and in particular, the clearance of those bridges in allowing traffic to go underneath them, because it was free and clear if you had a regular automobile, right? Right, yeah. But what about buses? Right. Well, unfortunately, many of those bridges are built so low, and the clearance so low, that buses cannot actually fit under them. Or perhaps they can fit in one lane, but not in all lanes, which makes it then impractical or impossible for for a bus to even take the parkway because they might get stuck in one lane and stuck under and prevented from passing under a bridge. In The Power Broker, author Caro interviewed a man named Sid Shapiro, who worked with Robert Moses on many projects for decades. He was one of his closest, uh, what were called Moses men, He was, in fact, the general manager of the Long Island State Park Commission. Shapiro claimed, told Caro, that Moses ordered the bridges along the Southern State Parkway constructed too low for buses to pass under, 
thus making it harder for poor New Yorkers to reach Jones Beach by bus. Recently, a, a Cornell professor named Thomas Campanella investigated this in a piece published in Bloomberg in 2017. But he also pointed out that parkways in the 1920s were intended for non-commercial traffic only. As we said before, parkways were meant to be beautiful, right? They were meant Mm -hmm. to give pleasure to drivers. It was a lovely way to reach a park. So trucks were banned from parkways, as were other commercial vehicles, which included buses. And this was not just the case here in the Southern State Parkway, but other parkways as well, including the Bronx, the Hutchinson, the Sawmill River Parkways, which were all either open by the time that the Southern State Parkway was under construction, or they themselves were also under construction. But to be clear here, to this day, on the Southern State Parkway, those bridges are too low for any kind of bus traffic at all. Yes, some of them are. In fact, recently, when I drove to the beach, I wrote down the bridge clearances along the Southern State Parkway as I drove underneath them, perhaps unwisely. I was (laughs) keeping my eye on the road, but they have it posted, obviously, Mm -hmm. because this is a notable feature, right? There's low bridge clearance. Right at the start, okay, where the parkway comes off of the Belt Parkway, There's a clearance of 8 feet 6 inches. But then right before exit 15, there is a bridge with a clearance of 7 feet 3 inches. That's at its lowest point of the bridge because the bridge opening is curved. But still, you just if you were driving a a bus, you couldn't take the chance of being on the parkway because you might get stuck in that lane because of construction or an accident or whatever, and you'd be stuck on the parkway. Well, I mean, that's only... A foot higher than I am tall. So I, I, mean, I think there are SUVs that are yes. actually taller. Mm-hmm. So buses could not take the parkway, but there right. were other routes out to the beach. Of course, yeah. There were there were local roads. There was a Sunrise Highway. You know, a smaller highway, lots of red lights, but mm-hmm. uh, they didn't have that issue. But it would probably be slower moving. So it's not accurate to say that buses couldn't go to Jones Beach and didn't serve people who wanted to go to Jones Beach, right? No, not at, not at all. In fact, I saw um, I found several bus lines advertising trips to Jones Beach in the Daily News. Um, I just looked at a Daily News on July 14th, 1933. Several ads here, including uh, round trips for $1.50. Also an ad for the Long Island Railroad, which would drop you off in Wonton. Then you could take a bus down to the beach. But according to Sid Shapiro, and quoting now from the power broker, quote, Mr. Moses had an instinctive feeling that someday politicians would try to put buses on the parkways, and that would break down the whole parkway concept. And he used to say to us, fellas, let's design the bridges so the clearance is all right for passenger cars, but not for anything else. So the beach officially opened in 1929 with that grand bathhouse and that gorgeous beach. But of course, throughout the next few years, many other fascinating architectural elements of the beach would be constructed here. Yeah, many of the main many of the other main buildings that we'll be visiting today would be finished in 1931. And these new structures would include the 2-mile-long boardwalk and the West Bathhouse. And of course, being a Robert Moses pet project, this would be a favored project for him. He would always return here, and there would be new features added throughout the years and the decades. Yes, already in the 1930s, one very important structure was added that would become synonymous with Jones Beach. That would be the Jones Beach Marine Stadium. The stadium that is there today was built in the 1950s. This was preceded by another stadium built in 1936 that was also staging big musical events and sporting events. You'll be taking us there in a moment. But Moses would also be adding new beaches, obviously thousands and thousands of new parking spaces, uh, including the West End beaches in 1960 and 1962, by which time the the length of Jones Beach had actually been expanded to a whopping six and a half miles. The 1960s were a special time. 
According to John Hank in his book, Jones Beach in Illustrated History, Jones Beach really peaked in terms of attendance and glory in the late 1960s. Quote, Jones Beach peaked on its 40th anniversary. In 1929, the new state park had consisted of one bathhouse linked by a four-lane causeway to the mainland. By 1969, two parkways and a total of 21 lanes provided access to a state park consisting of 2,413 acres, 16 beaches, two pools, two bathhouses, a bayfront theater, three boat basins, six fishing piers, three restaurants, 17 refreshment stands, and parking space for 30,000 cars. What is modern Jones Beach State Park like? What are the attractions and sites that greet you today? We'll hop in the car, because we're heading to Jones Beach right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by The Living New Deal. Do you want to find out how President Franklin Roosevelt's work relief programs transformed New York City during the tumultuous decade between 1933 and 1942? From the Triborough Bridge to the Lincoln Tunnel... And from enormous swimming pools to sewers, marinas, parks, playgrounds, schools, colleges, public housing, and public artworks, the WPA and other New Deal agencies gave thousands of New Yorkers jobs to dig themselves out of the Great Depression. We've been enjoying the fruits of their work ever since without realizing it or commemorating them for the wealth they left us. The Living New Deal is a nationwide team effort to inventory the public works legacy of the Roosevelt administration. You can visit their website at livingnewdeal.org to see an interactive map of New Deal America and to find paper maps of New Deal New York City, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. You can order maps and carry them with you when exploring those cities. And while you're there, check out the live events sponsored by the New York City branch of the Living New Deal. Find out what government can and should do for all of its people. The New Deal lives on all around you, just waiting to be seen. That's livingnewdeal.org. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
you can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. So Tom and I are going down the Wontaw Parkway. Yeah, Wontaw State Parkway. Um, although we're not in Wontaw State. We just left actually the little town of Wontaw. So we're on this area of Wontaw State Parkway, which I was just telling Tom reminded me a little bit of driving through the Florida Keys a little bit um, because it's it's flat, it's it's marshy, um, it's all recreation. There's like a slew of bike of bikers, of, of people on bicycles. <laughs> nope, we're going over a bridge now. We're not going under a bridge. Oh, look, Greg. I see a water tower. I see the... Is that a Venetian bell tower off in the distance? <laughs> Tom, where are we even? <laughs> this is a this is a far cry from Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> that was the point of building this. Oh, there's the Nature Center, um, a testing center, a COVID vaccine center, energy and nature center. Yes, it's interesting as you as we pull in here to Jones Beach itself, there are a bunch of uh, signs for vaccine and COVID testing, which is very exciting. I, I would say this is a, one of the more appealing places to get a vaccine. I might come out here and get another vaccine just because it seems so pleasant. I don't know. I was at the Museum of Natural History last weekend. That was pretty pretty impressive to see that taking place underneath the whale. That's the tops. Uh, we're going to pull over up here. Oh, there's a, in fact, there's a bus stop right next oh. to the... We did, did you see that, Craig? There was a bus stop. Okay. Oh, my God. All that stuff. Zip lines. <laughs> Robert Moses would not be into zip lines. <laughs> I would like to see Robert Moses on a zip line. <laughs> uh, okay, um, we're pulling into... We're pulling into the East Bathhouse uh, parking lot. Uh, this is a small little mini lot. <laughs> yeah, this was a... This is rather minuscule in terms of parking lots compared to the many such places out here on Jones Beach. If you're a fan of parking lots, I would say that Jones Beach is an absolute place to visit. Oh, yeah. Um, lots and lots of parking. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's some retirees and folding chairs. Let's pull in oh. to this little... What is it? Let's not hit it. Maserati. Oh, my God. Convertible. <laughs> Okay. All right, so we're sitting we're sitting next to this Maserati. So we just parked in a parking lot behind, tucked behind um, the East Bathhouse. But just minutes ago, we swung about that roundabout that took us right next to the water tower. That's sort of the centerpiece of Jones Beach. I would say if there is one recognizable landmark on Jones Beach, it is actually that Jones Beach Water Tower. It's clearly the tallest thing around, and you you see it for miles. I mean, if you were a kid coming out here, like, you know, like coming out to Jones Beach, mm -hmm. it would almost be like seeing Emerald City. Although, interestingly, it's actually not a place you can visit. You can't really go inside. It sits in the middle of this roundabout, as you said, transitioning Wontaw State Parkway with Ocean Parkway, which, of course, runs the length of the island, and that's what you take to get to the various attractions. It is so massive. How tall is it exactly? It is 230 feet tall. And Tom, being a world traveler, as I know you are, what does this tower res resemble to you? It actually doesn't look like a water tower at all. It looks like the bell tower in the Piazza San Marco in Venice. Yeah, and that's, that is its kind of loose inspiration. Uh, it's made of brick and limestone. So grand, what great import it has, but it has a rather pedestrian purpose. As the name implies, it is a water tower, and it stores 315,000 gallons of water, pulling from three wells that are 1,000 feet deep underground. Why would they need so much water out here? Because, like, the ocean's right there. 
Well, yeah, but there are so many different uses for water out here that seawater would not be appropriate. Ah. So whether you're, you know, using the bathroom over at the theater, or you're just drinking some water, or you're like washing yourself off, this is fresh water from the water tower. And by the way, it was renovated actually back to its original glory back in 2010. But I still think it looks spectacular. Well, there are many attractions, however, of course, that we can visit, and we're going to head out of the car. Oh, the couple just got back into the Maserati. <laughs> oh, and they're taking off. Um, show-offs. We're going to get out of the car, and we're going to walk up to the boardwalk. It's a two-mile boardwalk. We are steps away from it. Try getting this parking spot on the weekend. <laughs> and we're going to head up there now. Let's go. We are literally like 15 feet away from the from the boardwalk. I have a feeling that this is not, I mean, look at that. There's a sign over on a dune here. It says, do not abandon or feed cats. Violators may be fined or imprisoned. That'd be a heck of a way to wind up in jail. <laughs> so here we are up on the two mile long boardwalk, Greg. That's about 40 city blocks to you and me. And right in front of us is the long stretch of beautiful blue Atlantic Ocean. It's a wonderful day. Um, there is a bit of a breeze. It's going to be up in the high 70s here. So a great day to be at Jones Beach, even though it's um, about two weeks before the official opening of the season. So nobody is really in swimming, although people are out on lounge chairs and just kind of taking in the sun. And the thing I always find uh, romantic about places like this is, I mean, the water is so crystal clear and sparkling and really out in the distance because you can just see forever. You know, this here we are. Mm -hmm. This is the Atlantic Ocean. And we see container ships, ocean vessels of different kinds in the distance. I mean, it's really it's really magical. And I just go into vacation mode. The, <laughs> my brain is switching to vacation mode this very moment. I think I actually smelled some copper tone, you know, which... <laughs> The boardwalk, by the way, was originally constructed of pine. That would be damaged and replaced in bits and pieces throughout the years. However, it was severely damaged by Superstorm Sandy in 2012 and needed to be rebuilt with a harder Brazilian wood called Ipe Bethabera. But Tom, over our shoulder, uh, we see one of the first kind of historic landmarks and original pieces of architecture. That's the East Bathhouse. Why don't we take a closer look at it? So we're heading over to the, the bathhouse, which is made of a kind of rusticated stone. And there's we're going to... Row of, there's a row of palm trees and a... We're going to take some old steps up to a first floor landing. So we're standing up on the terrace that's uh, overlooking the boardwalk and the, the beach beyond that, waves crashing. It's nice to start here, actually, because this was the first structure to open in 1929. The first visitors came here to change and hit the beach. So I just have a very basic question because, of course, everyone is driving out here. Why do you even need lockers in the first place? I mean, couldn't you just drive here in your bathing suit or am I just being too risque here? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're forgetting. I mean, you could, allegedly, um, but people were also out pleasure driving at the very beginning, you know, and I don't, I don't know how it was to be in like a Model T in a bathing suit. <laughs> oh, uh, good point. I guess cars were different. <laughs> but also, when you, when you look at these old photos... People, when they arrived at the beach, were in like what we would consider today to be formal wear. You know, they were dressed to be seen at the beach. And then they went in and like took off their dress pants and dress socks and got into, you know, sometimes a full body bathing suit and ran into the water. But they needed a place to put away their clothes and lock them up. You could even rent a bathing suit if you forgot one. Wow. <laughs> Well, Tom, let's depart from the bathhouse and hit the grounds again. In fact, let's, let's take the boardwalk down to an area that they call the East Games. Oh, a little recreation. Yes. <laughs> okay. 
So we're in this area called East Games, and of course that is by the East Bathhouse, and there is a West Games that we'll be speaking about later on this walk. But I just wanted to speak generally about the idea of recreations out here, which was a big Robert Moses thing, because he wanted to contrast this place with all of the beach destinations that were in New York City, namely Coney Island and Rockaway Beach, which had a lot of what he would have considered unsavory attractions, things like taverns, but also, you know, thrill rides, uh, sideshows. You mean like all the reasons we love Coney Island? All the reasons that we love Coney Island were all the reasons that he hated Coney Island. He, he kind of hated like anything that was sort of carny rinky-dink sure for, um, for good for good reasons it could often be unsafe a lot of people wouldn't want to take their families out there I mean this is a more family friendly destination and so what's interesting is this really there's a beach on one side of the boardwalk and then on the other side there are a literal string of recreations that go up and down it and it's punctuated with these bathhouses for decades uh, they held circuses here there was a little uh, stadium that has been was torn down decades ago there was also very interesting a golf course, Tom. Like a, a mini golf course? N not quite. Uh, they called it actually Pitch Putt Golf. I mean, it opened in 1930. To quote from author Constantine E. Theodopoulos in his book on Jones Beach, quote, it was a traditionally styled 18-hole golf course with tees, sand traps, punting greens, and hazards. Its greens meticulously attended to. And I mean, if it fit in here, it must next to the beach and boardwalk, it must it must have been a pretty short game. And what I don't really understand is, you know, right now it's fairly windy. Like <laughs> I don't understand how you play golf next to a beach. So that's certainly a kind of like surprising. <laughs> like all of a sudden you're walking down the boardwalk and you get like smacked in the head with a golf ball. But I mean, I guess people just lived with those dangers when you went out to Jones Beach. I think that the nature of pitch and putt golf was that you weren't really you know you weren't taking out your nine iron i'm sure some golfer <laughs> no, is going to no, correct no, us on no, this no no <laughs> So since 2019, there are actually more adventurous activities out here for this place is called the Wild Play Zipline and Adventure Course. So if you have any like budding acrobats or like um, little um, Laura Crofts or Indiana Jones who want to practice their adventuring skills and climbing and and of course that extraordinary zipline, which I'm not getting on. Let's keep moving. What is that? Is that just... Oh, cornhole. <laughs> I had a cornhole. Robert Moses would not have been playing cornhole. I don't know. I feel like... I wouldn't be surprised. And then, uh, again, how do you play... I just can't imagine playing table tennis in, in this, this wind. In this wind. Maybe the balls were heavier back then. Well, those are new tables. Oh, Greg, look at this, by the way. We're, we're, we've just walked by East Games, but there's a great old sign here that says East Games area, shuffleboard, table tennis, bocce ball, cornhole, etc. But it has this great cutout above it, this um, sort of deco era stylized cutout that really ties into what you were saying before about, you know, the whole look of this place, um, the period look of this place. Right, the deco feel, dab of jazz age, it shows a woman in front of a vanity mirror applying some makeup. Today the cutout silhouette would be of a woman throwing a cornhole <laughs> beanbag. <laughs> or taking a selfie of herself, probably, more likely. So we've reached the Central Mall in the middle of the boardwalk. Uh, there's a great view straight ahead of the water tower, and there's also an iconic flagpole. This has been a meeting spot for millions. As we turn and we look at the, the ocean in front of us, Greg, the building on the right is a concession stand where we might have to stop by at the end of our tour and get a hot dog. Or clam strips or whatever, or some seafood. And the building on the left is another restaurant option, the Boardwalk Cafe. The Boardwalk Cafe is obviously newer. It was added in 2018. It, it's made of brick and sandstone and matches the rest of the buildings out here. I just wanted to point it out, though, because it was here 
on the site of that building in 2006 that a certain developer named Donald J. Trump proposed to build a fancy, luxurious upscale restaurant called Trump on the Ocean. For half a second when you said Donald Trump proposed, I was like, that's where he proposed to Melania? <laughs> to whom? No, so Donald Trump on the beach. Well. No, Trump on the beach. Sounds like a cocktail we might have these days. But, but ultimately in 2008, the plan fell apart and Trump on the ocean, alas, was never to happen. Oh, people are already packing into the beach shop. Greg, do you want to pick up some sandals? Some flip-flops. Maybe um, a tie-dyed hoodie. So also here in the center of the boardwalk is the Bandshell. It's an outdoor performance venue uh, with a great little deco stage. This one's from the mid-80s, in fact. Uh, but it has been located on this spot since 1935. Thousands of concerts have been held here over the years. There's always been this like musical component to Jones Beach and to the boardwalk. Professional acts, really well-known acts have performed out here on the boardwalk, as well as local groups, local bands and amateurs who have been allowed to play. But what's special, obviously, is that people have been taking in music during the day with waves crashing, nighttime concerts under the stars. But Tom, when people think performances out on Jones Beach. For most people, you're actually heading over to the other side of Jones Beach Island over on Zach's Bay, which is the location of the marvelous Jones Beach Theater or the Marine Theater, or today called the Northwell Health at Jones Beach Theater, which doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. Um, there was an actual stadium over on Zach's Bay at the, around the same time as this band shell, actually, from the 1930s, but it was replaced in 1952 with a much grander stage. And that's the stage that still stands today. Yeah. Now, back in the 1980s, of course, some of you may have been out here many times out here to see Foreigner, White Snake, oh, yeah. Tears for Fears, New Order, Shaka Khan, all the greatest. But believe it or not, the venue dates back to 1952 as the Marine Stadium at Jones Beach with 8,200 seats, okay? But today it has doubled the capacity, more than 15,000 seats. More than 15,000 seats. That's, can you imagine more than 15,000 screaming White Snake fans? <laughs> I can, Tom. I can, I can picture it. But back in 1952, it opened to some very different kinds of entertainment. Now, remember the water tower theme there, right? Um, well, when the Marine Stadium opened in Ju on June 26, 1952, it opened with a Johann Strauss opera, A Night in Venice directed by Michael Todd, who would a few years later marry Elizabeth Taylor, this show employed the stage's most interesting characteristic, which, which is, is that it has a moat. <laughs> a, a moat that opens into Zach's Bay. Yeah, uh, to quote from the New York Times in 1952 when it opened, quote, the offering will be performed on a 150-foot wide stage with a 76-foot revolving turntable. The stage itself constitutes an island in Zach's Bay, about 90 feet from the amphitheater on the shoreline. A regular performer here at the theater was bandleader Guy Lombardo, who would often sail up to the stage through the moat on a speedboat. And would Robert Moses uh, sail up as well? Would he skipper the ship? I'm not exactly sure, but he was a huge fan and friend of Guy Lombardo. Uh, and you could often find him at the Marine Theater. Uh, he had several boxes reserved for each show. And when he was in attendance at a Lombardo program, the band leader would strike up the Star Spangled Banner in tribute, you know, like he was the President of the United States. Well, he did certainly lord over this Long Island Park. And Robert Caro points out several times in The Power Broker that Moses would use his access to Lombardo and, in fact, all of these entertainment spaces for VIP purposes for really anybody he needed to wheel and deal and charm in order to getting something done uh, his way in the city. In, in some respects, this was his beach and these were his playgrounds, right? Now, the theater would continue to present only musicals until 1982, so they ended up bringing in rock and roll acts, and, you know, that brought 
crowds back into the theater. And in the early 1990s, it was expanded then to its current size to accommodate all of those uh, Hollow Notes and White Snakes fans. And by the way, it's over there where people would um, and continue to enjoy fireworks throughout the year, but of course on Independence Day. I must confess that we are now kind of in my favorite part of Jones Beach because we are now in the West Games Recreational Area and these are games that appeal to my sensibilities a little bit more. There are a bunch of tennis courts. There's a huge playground for the kids, um, but we are standing right next to this fun little mini golf course with little seahorses at each hole. A lighthouse that you can try to putt through, some four surfboards standing up. I think those are putting obstacles. This is, believe it or not, a brand new area. It just opened last year. It opened in 2020. But people have come to this area of Jones Beach for decades. And they are playing many of the same types of games. For instance, there's, there are some really fun shuffleboard courts over there. It has a very cruise ship vibe. Um, I have everything but the seasickness. Um, but there are a few things that are missing today that I want to point out. There used to be an outdoor roller skating rink, oh. which opened in 1941, closed in the late 1980s. And then there was the archery range. What? People came out here to shoot arrows, like, next to the boardwalk? <laughs> next to the boardwalk, with the wind, and next to the boardwalk. Yes. Um, and children, in fact, came here. When it opened... Children were given bows and arrows? Oh, yeah. When it debuted in 1930, the ranges were actually written up in the Brooklyn Standard Union. Quote... At Jones Beach State Park, archery has taken a hold upon a large number of visitors. The attendants in charge of the archery ranges are competent instructors, and no additional charge is made of their services. Many of the patrons who first tried their skill with the bow and arrow, out of mere curiosity, have become archery fans. Let's just hope that these young archers were actually, they were standing with their backs to the boardwalk. <laughs> But they were next to a, perhaps a, a more unusual section of the boardwalk, a section called Indian Village, which is about what you might expect. It was an actual village of Native American teepees in a supposed recreation slash tribute of the Massapequa Native people who once lived on this land. Although I think teepees are more of a plains people thing. Anyway, this place was geared to kids. And during the 1930s, the village had its own celebrity who worked out here, a woman named Rosebud Yellowrobe, who was personally hired by Robert Moses in 1930 to work as an educator at Indian Village. Tom, I actually found her obituary in a South Florida newspaper. She died in 1992. She had a long and industrious life. Quote, as director of the Indian Village at Jones Beach State Park on Long Island from 1930 to 1950, Rosebud, as she preferred to be called, enthralled legions of visitors with information about and stories from Indian culture. Rosebud, who was born near Rapid City, South Dakota, was a descendant of the Lakota Ayote, called the Sioux by white settlers. Through her family's prominence, she came to know many well-known figures, such as President Calvin Coolidge, whom she helped induct into Lakota membership in 1927, Cecil B. DeMille, who tried to persuade her to star in his films, and the planner Robert Moses, who hired her for the Jones Beach Post. Wow, she sounds fascinating. And yes, listener, you can imagine that Greg has just whipped out somebody's obituary <laughs> huddled next to a mini golf hut off of the boardwalk. Hey, this is what I do, right? I mean, she sounds like a fa she sounds like a fascinating woman. I mean, it's interesting that she was Lakota and she was out here at Indian Village talking about experiences that probably were not very accurate, but you know, this was the beginning of the Great Depression. Sounds like it was a great job. She got to educate thousands of kids. And because of her and, you know, because of this village, all you know, as as silly as it might have been, you know, a, a lot of kids got to learn about Long Island's Native American history. Now, as we look up over the tennis courts and the shuffleboard courts, beyond it there, we see the mighty structure of the West Bathhouse. Let's head up there now.
Well, as we walk here through the through the various courts, we, a point of clarification: many of these are not tennis courts at all, but they're pickleball courts. Wait, pickleball? What do you like? You like you bat a pickle back and forth with your rackets? Or what? Get with the times, Greg. <laughs> you obviously haven't taken a cruise in years. <laughs> no, I. Or been to Florida. No, I haven't. Oh well. Now, as we're rounding the boardwalk and heading toward the, the bathhouse, the style is again in brick and sandstone. There are some towers. So the cornerstone of this structure was laid by FDR in a ceremony in 1930. And Robert Moses obviously was there as well, but FDR was the governor of New York State. The West Bathhouse here has more than 5,000 lockers, but it also boasts a fine dining area on the second floor. That was originally called the Marine Dining Room. And during World War II, in 1943, the dining room was actually converted over by the Nassau County United Services Organization into a USO clubhouse for service members. So thus, this whole building then became a kind of lounge and bathhouse for military personnel throughout World War II. The Marine Dining Room itself was renovated and restored in 2016 and transformed into a restaurant and event space called Gatsby's on the Ocean. So bringing together the north and the south shore of Long Island into one <laughs> fine dining space. This bathhouse is also very well known for its swimming pools, its saltwater pools. And we can see it, Greg, there, let's take those stairs sure. and just peek out over the terraces down into the swimming pools. And we're overlooking an enormous, two enormous, and right now empty swimming pools. They will be opening later in June. And this is a big fingerprint of Robert Moses. This is the kind of thing that he wanted to encourage people to do out on the beach. Jump into this water on top of the ocean. But Tom, turning around here, we have a great look of the whole expanse of the beach. And now that the, we're at the end of the boardwalk here, shall we take a little stroll down to the beach? Through the sand? Through the sand. Let's go touch the water. gonna go for it <laughs> we are so not dressed for the beach come on let's go it's okay yes we can they're not gonna chase us out in just a matter of weeks Greg really in a matter of days this giant expanse of sand will be covered by human beings soaking up the Sun over really the the opening of this of the Jones Beach season which is Memorial Day and one of the delights of Jones Beach during Memorial Day is the Bethpage Air Show which uh, happens over the skies of Jones Beach the first was in 2004 to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the beach and if you're coming this year just get here early because because I read that half the parking spaces will be off limits in order to promote social distancing but now who knows well while we're still making our way over this vast beach all the way up to the water we just wanted to thank you for joining us today on this monumental history of jones beach and our second stop and our road trip to long island you can visit our website barryboyshistory.com for great images and postcards of old jones beach and a few pictures of Robert Moses enjoying himself out here on Jones Beach. And you can also follow us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and of course on Facebook. Thank you as always to our patrons who have made it possible for us to devote all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys and to taking you along on this road trip to Long Island. Join the fun at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys, where you will be given immediate access to all of the extra audio features that are available only to our patrons, bonus episodes, and the Bowery Boys Movie Club. Greg, we made it. We actually made it to the water. Uh, wow. Look at those waves. Um, it is a very impressive and beautiful beach here. I feel like doing a, a Deborah Carr, throw myself on the beach from here to eternity. Okay, Tom, I'm gonna run out to the water. I'm coming I'm too. Gonna, I'm gonna run to the water. <laughs>
Ah! Hold on, I, I got it. Ah. Oh my gosh, I was almost washed away. Uh, thank you very much for, for listening. Have a great Long Island week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs> I would like to see Robert Moses on a zip line. Ah.